Brace yourselves, higher side chatters. From the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood, and it is very clear that we are not without some major problems. A backwards education system, corrupt law enforcement, preservative-filled foods, corporate-controlled everything, and regulatory agencies that have been thoroughly gutted across the board. Not to mention a World Economic Forum agenda that seeks to surveil and control every aspect of our lives in what looks like it will be the defining fight of the next decade. And while words like collapse and apocalypse are bandied about and debated, for many outside of the comforts of the typical Western life, it's abundantly clear that it couldn't get much worse, as it's estimated that human trafficking is a $150 billion a year industry with 40 million people on the planet currently enslaved, many of them experiencing horrors on any given day of the week in situations we can barely imagine, and many of them children experiencing routine sexual exploitation, forced manual labor, violence, and extreme poverty from cradle to grave with no end in sight. Well, today's guest, Lee Dundas, knows these things all too well and has released a new book entitled Just Stand Up, My Fight for Freedom from the Brothels of Asia to the Streets of America, where she talks about her dedication to fighting injustice wherever she's founded on this island earth. For the unfamiliar, Lee is a human rights attorney and abolitionist dedicated to preserving basic freedoms while also combating global injustices like child slavery and the peddling of medical tyranny disguised as progress. Lee's career spanned three decades, commencing with her representation of Fortune 500 companies in high-dollar courtroom battles in the early 90s which focus changed to humanitarian work a decade ago when she joined an anti-slavery NGO as their general counsel. While there, Lee liaisoned with foreign governments to allow undercover surveillance of child brothels by former U.S. law enforcement assets, and also worked closely with NGOs on a plan to have on-ground investigators amass evidence of money laundering by human traffickers, and then securely relay that data to World's banks so they could flag accounts suspected of criminal activity. In recognition of her extensive knowledge on slavery matters, Lee was appointed 10 years ago to the Congressional Advisory Committee on Human Trafficking, where she further assisted in identification of these problems and helped formulate U.S. response to them. Lee has also dedicated significant time to a modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah region comprised of 140 child brothels along the Thai-Malaysian border, traveling in excess of 100 miles an hour to avoid roadside bombers in order to provide assistance to the children trapped there and embed a film crew to document the horrors of the child sex trade until Thailand's coup d'etat forced a retreat. In 2020, Lee took the lessons she learned fighting Asian criminal syndicates that were hell-bent on destroying children to the streets of America to fight the medical tyranny of the COVID era. She's certainly done a lot, and it's a pleasure to have her here, the brave brothel buster, slavery system exposer, and fearless freedom fighter extraordinaire, Lee Dundas, welcome to the higher side. Thank you so much for having me this morning. It's really a pleasure to be here. And that was an awesome intro. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I mean, I try. I try. But this is going to be a tough one on people. I already know. But as I said in that intro, I'm aware we have some major problems in our own lives. But sometimes it's also important to get some perspective on what life is really like for other people sharing the same planet right now. And after reading your book, In some areas, it's about as bad as a person could imagine, right? Yeah, that is definitely true. You don't realize how good you have at living in a first world country, or I should say what used to be a first world country here. 
And so you go to third world countries and you see how most of the rest of the globe is living. It really puts things in perspective. Absolutely. So I got from the book that you made this huge decision to get into fighting human trafficking in the early 2000s when you read an article about some sex trafficking survivors and their stories, which led you to finding two organizations you worked with, Rob Morris's Love 146 and the A21 campaign. And this nonprofit Love 146 actually has a really sad story as to how it got its name. Can you tell people a little bit about that? Yeah, and I didn't do a lot of work with Love 146. I liaised with one of their folks on the ground there in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. But I did work with two anti-trafficking organizations. It was 821 Campaign and then Liberty Asia, later named Liberty Global for a while. But in terms of the Love 146 story, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Their founder, young guy, probably about your age at the time, if I had to guess, was traveling in Southeast Asia and went out one night with some folks who were working to fight the child brothel industry. And they ended up in one of what is very pathognomonic, as they say, for brothels there. I mean, just a very good example of a child brothel in Southeast Asia. And they walked in and they had a bunch of girls, young girls, that were in a fishbowl. And the fishbowl was basically, you've got plexiglass or a glass pane between the pedophile, the sex buyers, the Johns, and all of these girls. And they were really young girls, you know, elementary school age. And they had numbers. They were wearing little party dresses and they had numbers pinned to their dresses. And all of the girls, one for one, were looking down at the ground. They weren't making eye contact with any of the men. And the founder of the organization, this was his first entree into the world of sex trafficking and brothel work, noticed that only one of the girls was really willing to make eye contact. And it was number 146. And she was sort of courageously slash defiantly, just absolutely gazing into their eyes. And he didn't know if it was because it was her first night and she wasn't broken and apathetic yet, or if it was her hundredth night, but for whatever reason, she was just wired differently, but she was still actively communicating with her eyes. And they sort of bonded as they looked at each other through the glass and his heart was broken. And he said, you know, are we going back? Like, what are we doing here? Yada, yada. And the organization that he was doing a ride along with at the time, because he didn't have his own organization, he didn't have Love 146 at this point, was like, yeah, we're going to go back. This is what we do. And they did, as I understand it, go back a few nights later to bust the brothel. But by the time they got back, number 146 wasn't there. So that was just really a pivotal sort of watershed moment in this guy's life. And he thought, I can't just, now that I know, I can't let it go, right? I, I can't not do something about this problem, which honestly is a refrain that you hear over and over again from people who jump into this work. They're like, wow, I didn't know about it. Wow, I didn't know how bad it was. But now that I know, I can't unring that bell. I can't not help now that I know. And so he founded the organization that he still to this day, I believe, runs, and he named it Love 146 in honor of of the memory of the girl that he was not able to save. And as a salient reminder every day when they spoke the words of what they were there to do and why they were doing this work, they, they go in to help the one, the girl 
that can't get out without the help of somebody like us going to Southeast Asia. And that was also the mission of the A21 campaign when I worked for them for the better part of a decade between 2013 and, and recent time. Christine Kane is her and her husband, Nick King, they're pastors. And they had started this organization because their heart was broken when they learned about trafficking. When they were traveling in Greece, they saw a bunch of pictures of girls lining the airport hallways. And finally, she looks at some local and is like, how is it that can, you can have thousands of girls, teenage girls missing? Like, how many girls can you possibly lose in a country? Like, what the hell? And the answer that came back was, well, they're not just missing. They've been kidnapped or sold into the sex trafficking trade. And much like Rob, much like Duncan Jepson, who was the founder of another organization I worked with in Hong Kong called Liberty Asia, one for one, when you talk to the founders of these groups and you say, why do you do this? They say, because I can't not help once I know. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, that story was really impactful on me in the book. And it's kind of typical as to what people experience and what these setups are really like. But you worked on the ground all across Southeast Asia. Talk to us about some of the conditions of the people living in these places you toured in brothels, but also just orphanages and in general. Yeah, it's a really great question. And I'll try to paint a picture with my words if it's possible. One of the most, I would say, defining moments of the trips that to sort of give context, my husband had a business at that point. We were both working in it because we were young parents like you are right now. And it was easier for me to help my husband and make my own hours than to be practicing law 3,000 hours a year and never see my child. So we'd have this business and in 2013, we sold it. And my daughter was eight years old at that point. And we yanked her out of third grade and we started traveling. And we began in Australia and New Zealand, but we ended up in Southeast Asia. And one day... We were in Cambodia and we had signed up for a tour of a lake. There's a lake in the middle of Cambodia called Tonle Sap Lake, and it's the largest freshwater lake in the region, although defined freshwater because during their dry season, it's 10 to 12 feet deep in brown, murky, muddy water. It's like a giant mud pond. And um, our guide put us in a canoe and we paddled out to these houseboats. But I say houseboat, and your listeners are probably thinking Lake Mojave, Lake Powell houseboat. This was more like Mark Twain lashed together pieces of rotting wood with a little ramshackle kind of wood hut perched on top of it. And when the typhoons come or any natural disaster comes, it wipes out families in the region. They get flooding and whatnot. But sometimes a kid or two will escape. So then they're orphans. And there's this orphanage that sits on this floating wooden platform where all these kids who no longer have parents due to some natural disaster live all day long, 24-7 in the middle of Tommy's Half Lake with their teachers also on board. And we get out in this canoe with our guide to visit the orphanage and we step out and we walk into very impoverished surroundings. There's PVC plastic barrels in the corner and we go, what's that? And they're like, oh, that's the water we drink. And I'm like, where does it come from? And they're like, out of the lake. And let me tell you, if you saw the color of the lake, you'd be like, oh my gosh, right? And I'm like, okay, wow, do you boil it? Or like what? And they're like, well, yeah, we try to let it sit out and we, you know, try to boil it. And just to give you some idea, because you're from America, the kids drink the water out of the lake, they go to the bathroom in the lake, they wash their clothes in the lake, and they eat the fish out of the lake. And I'm like, oh, wow, all right, got it. 
And then, you know, we walk into this classroom and there's kids that are my daughter's age and it looks like there's calculus on the whiteboard. Very interesting. So they're doing way higher math than any American classroom I've seen in elementary school. And my daughter eventually makes a little friend, despite the fact that she doesn't speak a word of Cambodian and the Cambodian girl doesn't speak any English. And they're palling around. And apparently a prior tourist the week before had given the little girl a packet of hair dye. So she had a little pink streak in her hair and she wanted to see it. So I took a picture with my cell phone and I turned it around. And I don't think that little girl had ever seen any picture of herself or a mirror or anything. Like this was her first time seeing an image of her. And there she and my daughter are. And there's a picture I think of them in the book. I included about 20 color photos of my book so that people could actually start to see, not just hear, but see what the world is like outside their bubble and their zone. And, you know, they're fast friends and they're palling around. And at the end, I look at the tour guide and I said, look, she was really entranced with her picture. Why don't I shoot you a copy? You know, do they have cell phones? And he said, no. And I said, well, I can send a copy to your cell phone. He goes, I don't have a cell phone. I and I'm like, oh, well, I guess I could go back to the hotel and maybe print out a color copy and mail it to you. And he goes, we don't have mail. Just the basic things that even when you're not trying really hard to not be biased and prejudiced and have your first world perceptions in place, the rug is just ripped out from underneath you. So we're getting ready to get back in the canoe that we paddled out to this floating barge on. And and helping my daughter from the bigger platform, stepping down into the little canoe. And my husband pulls up the clothing on my elbow and he's like, turn around. She's going to say it again. And I'm like, what? And I was kind of pissed off at my husband because I'm like, look, I don't want my kid to fall into the breach between you know the orphanage and the floating canoe. She's like eight. I'm trying to get her safely from one to the other. And so I, I turned brusquely, very brusquely back to him. I'm like, what? Like, just leave me alone. I'm trying to get our daughter in, basically. And he goes, stop you need to look at what I'm saying. She's going to say it again. And he points in the direction of a tinier canoe that's barely afloat and holding water that has sidled up alongside our canoe, which I had not seen. And in this threadbare canoe is a woman who looks twice my age, but upon further inspection is probably exactly my age. But she's been living in the hot Cambodian sun with no shelter for her entire life. So she looks like she's 60 and not 38 or whatever. And in front of her is a toddler, like maybe a year and a half year old baby girl who's got really no clothing on at all. And the baby is standing at the end of the canoe sucking on a bottle of dirty lake water. And this woman looks at me, I mean, looks at me, like looks into my freaking soul. And then she yanks her gaze away from me, looks at my daughter, who is dressed, for the record, head to toe in pink and white, which were her favorite colors in third grade, of course. And we're not rich. I mean, I'm not, we're comfortable middle class at the time, and maybe not so comfortable, you know, like depending on whether our business was doing good or not good that month. But we're certainly not certain, right? And she looks back at me after looking at my daughter with a very appraising stare, and she points at her baby at the end of the boat or at the end of her canoe, and she goes, thousand dollars? You take my daughter gasps and she leans over to me and she goes, Mama, did she just offer to sell her baby to you? And the woman repeats it. She looks at my daughter and back at hers and she goes, Thousand dollar you take. And I just gotta say, Greg, thank God I didn't have a thousand dollars that day or I would have bought a child. And categorically, hands down, that is not the answer to the poverty or slavery problem. 
in third world countries, especially when you get back to LAX with an extra kid that you don't have a passport for. But we were just heartbroken. We, we cried. My whole family, my husband, me, my daughter took turns crying on and off the entire rest of the day. And you realize very easily at that point that there but for the grace of God go you and your child. I was born in California. That was a luck of the draw thing. I could have just as easily been born in the middle of Cambodia and had this woman's life. And before we demonize parents that we really don't understand, and I say that now having worked for 10 years in third war-torn countries, before we go demonizing these parents who are asking to sell their baby to a tourist or when they fail to sell their baby to me, then they turn around and sell their baby to a brothel. You have to realize the reason they're freaking doing that, the reason they're selling their child is because if they don't, that kid will starve. And so will all of their other eight children starve to death this year because guess what? They don't have birth control. So, you know, it's very, very easy to walk into these countries and think, oh, how dare these sex traffickers sell these children how dare these mama sons sit and babysit these girls waiting for pedophiles to come in and rape the girls? And how dare these parents sell their children to the brothels? But you don't know what it's like until you've lived their life. And even I, working side by side in these circumstances now, still don't truly understand what that is like. That mama son, that mama son that I used to think was part of the problem, I got news for your viewers. She's a girl who didn't die. She's a girl whose mother was so poor that she couldn't sell that eight-year-old or that two-year-old to a brothel. So she sold that baby to a brothel. And instead of dying by the pimp or the trafficker or dying by a violent John or pedophile who strangled her to death during the sex act or dying from AIDS or syphilis that went to her brain, she just kept living. She kept living. And now she's 24 and no pedophile wants her and she can't go home. Because once you've been sold to a brothel, even though your family is the one who sold you, you're considered to be damaged goods and you can't go back to the small hut in the small town, if you can even call it that, in Laos or Cambodia, where you hail from. And so there she is with no skills, no way out, in a brothel, and she becomes the babysitter for the girls that the pedophiles do want. And so you go to these places and you come home to your middle-class suburban lifestyle after six months. We were there almost a half year in these regions and you walk in your back door and I keep a fairly clean house. I, I mean, my surfaces are clean. I'm not chock-a-block full of tchotchkes in every corner. And my husband and I walked into our living room, looked around our house in Orange County and we're like, are you feeling it? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, we need to take truckloads of this stuff out of our house because we don't need anything. And the actual reality is the only thing you need is water, a little bit of food, probably about one thirtieth of the food you and I eat in America. And if you're living in a tropical environment like the one I just described, you don't even need clothing and shelter. That's it. And you come home and you intrinsically understand. And my daughter understood. She would say things like 10 months later, like, hey, mom, my backpack's got a hole. I need a new backpack. And I'd look at her and I'd go, do you need it or do you want it? And she'd smile and she'd go, no, it's a lot. I don't need it. And she walked off. And no amount of lecturing your kids about how privileged they are to have three square meals a day does the lesson the way standing in a canoe watching her mother sell her baby or trying to sell her baby your parents does. My child has a very level head on her and it's because she's been to the killing fields of Cambodia at age eight. She knows where communism goes. She knows you'll be a skull washing up 50 years later in a place called the killing fields if you let a communist overthrow Jacob and your government. And no, she is not at now age 18 
one of the 51% of the youth who are surveyed in college who think it would be cool to live in a communist or socialist country. My child, my child knows exactly where that leads. And I would urge your viewers, and this was a very long answer, and I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> I would urge your viewers to knock off the Disneyland trip this Thanksgiving or December vacation or your Grand Canyon trip next summer and buy a one-way plane ticket to Cambodia and take your children where I accidentally took my child and worried I was going to need to buy her 10 years of therapy. And in fact, I needed to buy her no therapy. And what I did was make her a very grateful, well-adjusted child who gets it. We need to actually show ourselves and our family and even our children how the rest of the world lives. Because you can't fix a problem you don't know about, and you can't be grateful for a life you've never stepped outside of for a second. Mm -hmm. Well said. And of course, child brothels and sex trafficking is probably the darkest application of human trafficking and slavery. But I've heard you talk in other interviews about the wider scope of forced labor camps, of young boys being worked to death on fishing and shrimping boats, lithium mining. What more can you say about just the wider scope of human trafficking, human enslavement, and what regions and industries are most to blame? Human trafficking is a huge problem to just set the stage for the answer. It's 150 billion with a B, billion dollar a year industry, 40 million with an M people are currently enslaved. To give your viewers some idea of the scope of that, I live in California. We've got almost 40 million people in my state. So it's like waving a magic wand or an evil wand, if you will, overnight and having every single person in California chained to a bed, being raped 10 times a night by pedophiles for profit or stuck in a mine in Africa, mining the minerals that go into your cell phone and your Tesla battery, right? And it is a huge, huge problem. And we need to stay away from comparing our pain to other people's pain or conditions to other conditions. I mean, I personally think that if you had to ask me which human trafficking context I would least like to be in, it would be a three-year-old being raped by grown men night after night, 10 times a night in non-pet camp. Like, to me, you just don't get much worse than that. But it's no walk in the park to be a 17-year-old man who is not recognized because you're one of the Hill tribe. You're not a member of the Thailand community. You're not a member of the Laotian community. You're not considered a citizen of that country. Or you're part of the caste system in India, right? And your persona non grata, you may as well be chattel. And you ended up on a shrimping boat in the ocean off of Thailand. And you're literally worked to death. And by that, I mean you're working 19 hours a day, sleeping a few hours a night, doing back-breaking, brutal work until you die. They just work until they die. And my daughter actually asked me, we were on a flight from Cambodia to Thailand. And I just found out about human trafficking. I was just starting to volunteer my time for some of these organizations. And apparently she had heard me talking about it. And we're on Laotian air, okay? It's just full of people who are not white. And the chairs are like this big. And so you're like an Amazon as a white person who's a 5'8 female, you know, sitting in these teeny tiny chairs that are built for 90 pound, five foot nothing, you know, Laotian woman. And you're clearly the odd man out, right? And my daughter, again, dressed head to toe in pink this day, pipes up into a quiet time on the plane, which just never happens on an airplane. It's always got background noise and the sound of the motor. But it sounds like a church or a library all of a sudden. Of course, this is always when your kids nail you with something, right? 
And she goes, Mama, in this crystal clear voice, it just <laughs> resonates throughout the entirety. It's like, Mama, what is sex, slavery, and sex trafficking or something like that? And I look over at my husband with these big eyes, like the help me face, right? And he just looks at me and, you know, he's been waiting for decades for his moment in the sun. I mean, this is a type B physician who's been married to a type A hard ass litigator for years now, right? And he looks at me and he's like, babe, it's all you. You got this. <laughs> you got us into this mess. You're going to answer our darling's question, right? And I don't know what to say. I mean, I barely had the birds and the bees conversation. I don't want to give her nightmares for 20 years by giving her too much data, but I don't want to punch totally because she asked the legit question. So my mind is searching and searching. And I finally, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give her the labor trafficking definition, the human trafficking definition, and just sort of sidestep the sex part. So I say, well, honey, in countries like the ones we're visiting, and a lot of places in India and places like that, Africa, India, they take little kids and they make them work in mines and factories and cocoa fields for chocolate. And t-shirt factories to make your Nike shoes or t-shirts or whatever. And they work them and work them and work them and work them and work them in the hot sun or these brutal sweatshop factories until they die. And before that, they never get to go to school and they never get a day off, not even for, and she's asking questions, not even for Christmas. No, they don't get to go to school. No. Do they ever see their parents? No. Are they allowed breaks? No. Do they get fed? Maybe a half a cup of rice a day and a little bit of water. That's it. They're basically starving. So I paint the picture for her and I feel like, phew, I've kind of dodged a bullet with the sex part of the question. And you can see her kind of ruminating on my answer and mulling it over in her mind's eye. And I'm just about to breathe a pent-up exhalation like, phew, dodged a bullet. And she looks back at me and she goes, Mama, so how does the sex part factor into that? And now my husband is just doubled over. He's halfway laying down in the aisle laughing quietly. And every Cambodian and Laotian and Thai person on the plane is now also tuned in to our English conversation because they may not speak a lot of English, but they know the word sex, right? And I'm sitting there again trying to figure out how the heck I'm going to describe these conditions. And before I can come up with a good answer that won't give her nightmares, she looks at me and she says, is it like a forced date? And I said, sure, yes, kid. it is. Yeah. You know what, babe? You just answered your own question. Just enough data to let her know it's not a cool thing. It's not something you'd want, but not enough to mm. need to put her in therapy. And that is the <laughs> definition I would suggest you run with when you're talking to your children who are young about this, because they get the boys have cooties or girls have cooties when they're in grade school. And you wouldn't want to have to be forced to be on a date with them. But it doesn't, like I said, require years of therapy. Right, right. Delicate stuff for sure. And so you mention in the bio and obviously in the book, liaisoning with foreign governments to allow undercover surveillance of child brothels by former U.S. law enforcement assets. You also talk in the book about how the local cops are basically like a mob. They charge the brothels a fee to not get busted and then also partake in their services. And the government largely has to be pretty complicit. They definitely turn a blind eye. They don't seem to care in the region of the red light districts at the Thailand-Malaysia border saying there's 140 child brothels there. I mean, clearly they don't do much about it. And you mentioned some of the workers that are used in all sorts of industries, fishing, shrimping, 
Tesla batteries. Like, how do you stop this? I mean, people hear this and it sounds as awful as could be, but what can you practically do to try to unravel this mess? You also hear people, researchers talking about the CIA being involved, the FBI being involved. Some of these NGOs, they say they're working to stop human trafficking. And then some people get busted moving kids around and it looks a little unsavory. There was a comment just on one of your previous interviews where someone said they were working. They volunteered to try to help this issue, a small aid project in Kathmandu, Nepal, and then found out once they were there that UNICEF seems to be a big player in child trafficking helping work with the local police and military to keep the problem going. So you find people who are like, yeah, I'm all in. I'm willing to dedicate myself to helping with this problem. And then they get on the ground and the whole thing is organized to pretend like they're helping and people take bribes. It's just a big mess. So I guess, what could you say about what you might've saw when it comes to institutional involvement in this stuff? And any possible real world solution to unravel even a small piece of the puzzle? Excellent questions all. I have three answers. I took notes because I didn't want to forget one of my pieces <laughs> of the, the answer. But to set the stage again, a lot of these foreign third world countries, the corruptions, we think it's bad here in America and it's clearly taken a huge turn over the last three years of even prior. But we don't have a perfect system, but it's a damn sight better than in, in these third world countries. So one of the first days I was doing work in this brothel town that has 140 child brothels in it on the Thailand Malaysia border, we were actually, I'm going to turn my camera, I don't know if you can see the picture there of me and that girl whose face is sort of buzzed out. So it was the night I met her and I'm sitting on a bench outside the brothel initially with her and the pastor I was doing the work with and it's twilight, it's getting to be dark and two cops get out of an SUV and they're in uniform, and they walk by two white people, me and the cop, right? Or me and the pastor, rather, which is unusual in that town. It's very local <laughs> flavor, usually. And they say, oh, sawadika, sawadika, which is the Thai greeting, and we greet them back in Thai. Oh, good night, good night to be out. Yes, good night to be out. And they go past our little bench, and they make a right turn into the brothel. And they're in there for about 30 minutes. And they come out half hour later, and they have a little bag by their thigh, which I had not really noticed on the way in, but I noticed now because it's not a flat sack, it's slightly thicker. And they go five feet down the dirt alley and they make another right into the next alley. These dirt alleys are just lined with brothels and they have industrial roll-up gates, like the kind you see in auto body areas of you know industrial districts. And so they roll the gates up at night and then you see the glass pane windows and the tiny little brothels and bars and whatever. So they're just making their way down the alley and they go in five minutes out, in five minutes out, and their bag is getting bigger and bigger between each stop. And every hour or so, they spend 30 minutes at a brothel instead of five. And so the pastor looks at me at some point and he goes, do you want me to explain? And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, think 1940s mafia protection thingies they're on the tape. And I go, oh, so that's money in their little sack? And he goes, yeah, they're collecting money from the brothels in exchange for turning a blind eye and not busting them just like 1940s New York City. And I said, oh, I get it. And when they're spending 30 minutes every hour in the brothel instead of five, that's because they've let their refractory period pass and they're going back in for more sexual favors. <laughs> they're raping the girls they're supposed to be rescuing. 
And he goes, exactly. And I said, oh, I get you now. Okay. So the Thailand police routinely on a scale of one to five, with five being the most corrupt, are ranked A4 or five. And the DAs and prosecutors and cops are in on it. They're working in many cases. A lot of times the cops clock out of their day job nine to five and they go down the street and they clock into a brothel. All the brothels, a lot of the big ones in Bangkok and the bigger areas have muscle. You know, they have bouncers, of course. And who are those bouncers? Well, they're off-duty police. So to walk in to a third world country like I did, all Pollyanna at the beginning, you know, not, we're not in Kansas anymore. I'm like, yeah, these first world tools, cops, lawyers, lawsuits, criminal justice system that we have at our disposal in America, I ain't going to fly here. That cop, that DA, never going to arrest the brothel owner because he's moonlighting for the brothel owner and making extra money. So he's not going to arrest the guy who's signing his secondary paycheck so that he can bank that money and send his kid to school in New Zealand and not have to sell his own child to a brothel to avoid, you know, watching them starve. Like, I mean, it's just the haunt mess. So the answer to your question is you need to solve the poverty problem because that is the driver. It's not that 80% of the people in these third world countries are bad. I believe firmly that 80% of the people, regardless of region of the world over, are actually good hearted. And when they do bad things, they're trying to solve a problem and they're doing the best they can to solve it. And it may look like an ugly answer to you and me because we're not facing the situation of, do I sell my child to a brothel so I save all the other ones? Or do I not so that we all die this year? I mean, we don't really see what their smorgasbord of options is that led them to the option they exercised. But that is the driver, poverty. And so then you need to ask the question, how the hell did they get so poor that those are their two options? To, to work for the brothel after they get done with their day job as a policeman or as a parent to sell their good to a brothel instead of starving them out, watching them starve. And the answer to that question is communism. All the countries I work in over there are communists or may as well be. Cambodia had a communist overthrow in the 1970s when I was a child. Pol Pot came to town and recruited the Khmer Rouge, a subset of that population. Young men put them in black pajama pants, and they went around executing people when they didn't starve to death. I mean, it was a full-on communist overthrow genocide. One quarter of the Cambodian population was exterminated. We're talking Holocaust magnitudes of order here, right? So that is a huge issue. Wow. 90% of the girls we pull out of the Thailand brothels come from Laos, Laos, if you want to pronounce the S, but the locals say it Laos, and that's how I say it. And again, currently communist country, Vietnam, communist, right? All of these countries are communist or may as well be communist. And so when Khrushchev said in the 1950s, I will take America without firing a single shot, I will destroy her from within. And in 1963, we had a congressman read into the open congressional record in our country, the 45 communist goals that they had set out, which included officially recognizing Red China as a real country, permitting trade between countries regardless of communist affiliation, taking over, capturing, was the word capturing, one or both political parties in the U.S., capturing the schools to use them as a quote-unquote transmission belt for the purveying of communist and socialist propaganda, taking over the teachers' union, infiltrating the press, infiltrating the student press, getting rid of the nuclear family by way of normalizing divorce, making it easier to access divorce, normalizing sexual perversion. You think Drag Queen Story Hour was just something that happened three years ago? No, they've been planning this SHIT for 70 years. And this is just the tip of the iceberg that finally broke through the surface, right? They have well achieved more than half their goal. So if you don't want to be selling your kid to a brothel instead of watching them starve, if you don't want your child's eight-year-old skull to wash the top of a shallow grave, 
50 damn years from now because somebody forced your child into a FEMA camp. And when they said no to the jab, they decided to just point a gun at their head and exterminate them face down in shallow graves like these skulls. See my daughter here? There's my daughter, age eight. We ended up at the killing fields of Cambodia. That is the monument at the end of the killing fields, which I did not, for the record, know existed when I took my eight-year-old there. I thought it was just empty fields. But when those skulls wash up during the rainy season, they put them in a monument and they attach a sign that says, never forget what happened here. So that is why we need to be fighting the war we are in here, the second Holocaust, if you will, with everything we have. To get back to your main question, though, you can demonize Hitler all you want, and you can demonize sex traffickers all you want, and you can demonize parents that sell their babies to brothels all you want. But I am here to tell you the problem with the Holocaust, it was Hitler to some degree. But in the main, the problem was the good Germans who went along with the plan. Because if they had just stood up and said, hell no, Hitler, we're not baking our friends in ovens who happen to be Jewish, Hitler would have just been one more schizophrenic crazy guy with a meth habit that nobody listened to. It was the obedience of the population listening to a bad man and executing his plans on his behalf that allowed the Holocaust to go where it went. And in the same manner, it is not necessarily the poverty and bad people who are the real problem behind human trafficking. It is the demand. Because I am here to tell you, if no pedophiles were lining up in India, in America, in Southeast Asia, in Australia, in Switzerland to buy five-year-old kids or 15-year-old girls for sex, all of those mafias and cartels would be selling illegal weapons and heroin and cocaine again because there would be no market for the girls. You want to fix the sex trafficking problem? Yeah, you've got to fix communism and poverty in these civil countries. But you need to start by teaching your boys when they are little kids. And I say boys because it's largely boys and men that are buyers. You don't buy people. You don't ever sell a person and you don't ever buy a person for any reason, whether they're making a lithium battery for you in a mine in Africa as cheap labor or whether they're being bought for sexual purposes in a brothel, you know, or a travel lodge in Chicago or a brothel in Asia. And when you kill the demand, you actually start to handle the problem. And there are very effective ways to kill the man. St. Petersburg, Florida, when I started doing this work, was having a huge problem with men buying girls for sex. And they were doing these things you see on 20, 20, and 60 minutes where they'd bust the men. And it wasn't really having much of an effect. And then they decided, you know what? Not only are we going to do these undercover stands, we're going to take the men that we arrest and put their name and their face in a high-colored, glossy photo on a billboard that says, Joe Blow was arrested for these crimes and is going to stand trial on thus and such. And here's his name and here's all of his data. And then they went one step further and they sent a dear Mrs. John, you know, we call the buyers Johns in the industry. Dear Mrs. John, dear Mrs. Smith letter to the wife. This was brilliant. They said, dear Mrs. Smith, you probably don't know this, but your husband was arrested on a bad side of town on Friday night for propositioning and soliciting an underage sex worker, a minor for prostitution. So he's been busted and he's going to go to trial and he's going to have an arrest and a felony when we get done with him, hopefully. But we're guessing you don't know this about him. And by the way, this wasn't his first time. This is his second or third best. So you might want to route yourself to the nearest STD clinic to get checked for syphilis and gonorrhea and chlamydia and AIDS to make sure you're not about to die. Sincerely, with your local health officer. And I am going to tell you that name and shame program dropped the incidence of sex trafficking in St. Pete's, Florida by 24.5% over a freaking night. And if you know anything about statistics, to even move the needle 5% in response to one good idea is huge. To drop it by one quarter by 25% was phenomenal. So, what I'm telling you as a mom and a pop, 
to go do a name and shame program on the bad guy pushing the bad plan in your neighborhood, whether it's masking your kid or a vax mandate at school or just drag queen story hour. You find the plan. You find the person pushing the plan. You do oppo research, opposition research on them. You want to know anything they've done that makes you go, whether it's cheating on your spouse, cheating on your taxes, Hunter Biden laptop stuff, whatever it is. And then you put it on blast and good people will do the rest. They'll go, really? Our local officials doing what? Our health officer was selling methadone in a methadone clinic to heroin addicts who are trying to get off heroin and she's giving them Suboxone, right? And it's not illegal for an MD to do that. But when I told the 3.2 million people in Orange County that the only clinical qualifications of our new health officer is that she was handing out opiates to guys who were trying to get off their favorite opiate. And then we went and protested in front of her house in Irvine. She resigned. I didn't need to spend a few hundred grand in a lawsuit I would have lost. I just named and shamed her. Name and shame programs work. So these are some of the ways that we as average citizens, even if you don't have a law degree or a medical degree, can fight injustice, whether it's the stuff we're seeing with the freedom fight recently in America over the last few years, or human trafficking in St. Pete's, Florida. These are the things that actually work. Fair points. And I'm totally with you that I'd rather live in a capitalist system than a communist one. But it isn't like we don't also have problems with uh, financial incentives and slavery and sex trafficking. I think you mentioned in a previous interview that a Mexican woman in Southern California was snatched right off the street and then chained in a building to a sewing machine and forced to sew. And these sorts of things happen. And in capitalism, there is also an incentive. First off, biology, that's going to be an incentive for a lot of men who can't get what they want in other ways. And money is an incentive for the slave labor aspects of things in any system, it seems. So that seems pretty difficult to unravel. And I'm curious what you think about legal prostitution, because the problem is underage, of course, and slavery. These pimps that are chaining girls up and these people who have no morals going and and using that system. Obviously, that's terrible. But what do you think about the fact that if an adult woman wants to make money through sex, she should maybe be allowed to do that? And wouldn't that kind of shine a light on the industry? Wouldn't it regulate the industry to a degree? It would separate the dark stuff from the stuff that is maybe just transactional and everyone is a willing participant? It's a tough call because I am very, you do you, I do me, and the government can get the hell out of our lives to to a large degree on all sorts of stuff. I don't like the nanny government, the intrusive government model for anything. I mean, you should care that they're trying to mandate a vaccine because You don't want the government in the middle of your doctor-patient relationship. I mean, this is a slippery slope that knows no end. You know, now you're going to go in, you've got diabetes, and they're like, you have to take this drug, or you can't take this other drug, or you can't get this chemo, or you have to do chemo, and you can't do all, you know, holistic stuff. Like, you don't want a government to be in charge of your body, period, full stop, on medical care, ideally, right? So I'm definitely of a mind on that. What I now know, having worked in the sex trafficking industry, fighting it, I should say, for for 10 years now, is you would think, and I thought this going in, that if you just allow legal prostitution with legal consenting adults to do a financial transaction for sex, as they do in Nevada, right, 
the ranches in Nevada, that it will decrease the incidence of illicit, dangerous sex where men are raping young girls and that kind of thing. What we've actually found is the opposite. When you legalize prostitution, it increases not just all types of sexual activity, illicit and consenting overage adults, underage solicitation and prostitution and sex shopping. It just raises the incidence of all of that across the board and drug use and I mean, all sorts of associated crimes that aren't even sex based. So it's not like, hey, let's turn the faucet on over here and we can let the men get what they want or what they need or whatever your argument is, right? And then they won't do it over here. What we find is you say, well, we're going to give you this dedicated lane in the hopes that we get rid of the other lanes on the freeway. And instead, we give them one lane and they take a mile. And now you've got a thoroughfare of all sorts of sexual nefarious practices, on gradient degrees going on. And the converse is also true. So Sweden had at the time a 51% female majority led legislature. No coincidence there with what I'm about to say. Sweden some years ago decided they were going to handle the incidence of sex trafficking in their country by making the buying of sex, any sex, even 40-year-old man, 40-year-old woman, for a fee, though, the buying of all sex, the equivalent of a U.S. felony. You're going to go do hard time, like seven years in hard prison. And fascinatingly enough, it decreased the incidence of sex trafficking of youth, the stuff we're worried about, to zero, basically, over freaking night. Because all the pimps and traffickers were like, yo, dude, not worth it to go to Sweden. And the buyers were like, screw that. I don't need to go to Stockholm. I'll go to Amsterdam, right? And so now you've got, right, the problems you see in Eastern Europe and in Amsterdam, the sex. But Sweden is cleaned house, as it were, because it's a deterrent. They criminalized the activity entirely, and it acted as a deterrent. So if your interest is in actually getting to the root of the underage buying by adult men of underage youth, what the actual real-life studies show is you should criminalize both the buying and the selling of all sex that involves commercial transactions. And when you do that, you're good to go. And what I will say is even to the women who loudly proclaim in the street, I'm a grown-ass adult, and I should have a right to sell my body if I want. It's my right. Go talk to them. Go sit down and actually talk to them. And I am willing to bet that high 90%, if not 100% of those women as adults, were sexually abused or raped or otherwise similarly exploited before the age of 18. One in three women generally, in, in the general population in America, are sexually assaulted before the age of 18. One in five men, one in three women, okay? So do the math, like you're in church or at the PTA meeting. Start counting every third head, every fifth head. That is the incidence of sexual exploitation and harm in our society at large. But you see women self-selecting into these professions, if you want to call it that, because they don't have a choice. No seven-year-old girl in her right mind is like, I want to be a hooker when I grow up. This happy hooker, Julia Roberts, Richard Gere, you know, pretty woman. That doesn't exist. A hundred percent of these women are being exploited. It is rare that you meet a woman who's working for herself. Very, very, very rare. And even that woman, when you start interviewing her, you go, yeah, how was your childhood? Oh, well, yeah, I was sexually abused by my uncle, my scout leader, my pastor, priest, whatever. Like, 
these women are doing it because it's a learned mechanism. They're doing it because they've learned they can make money do it. They've learned to do it because their self-esteem, the only time anybody gave them any sort of positive praise or acknowledgement was when they did something sexual for the guy. And so now they're running old recipes in their head, whether they're cognizant of it or not. And in that case, do I think government should step in and say, we're going to protect you from yourself by saying we're not just going to allow these transactions? Yeah, but less so from the protection of women and more so because men should just not be paying for sex, period, full stop. Like <laughs> it leads to bad things. It just leads to bad things. Fair. I, I don't disagree with you in what you're saying. Well, what about the women you have been able to help? First, I would ask through your actions, how many women do you think you actually, or women or children, do you think you actually got out of this system? And what would be some of their stories for people who are just totally, this stuff is so foreign to them? Yeah, good question. Hard to keep total track. And it's a bit of a interesting number because you can count the number of girls you dragged out of brothels or who made a cry for help to your human trafficking hotline in Greece, you know, that our organization ran. And that's a number. But, you know, you can also say, okay, well, we walked in and did a hundred talks over the last three years in junior high and high schools here in America. And we educated the girls on how human trafficking happens here to even the rich white girls who are 4.3 GPA in the honors AP classes. Because to give you a story from that sector, a little more relevant to probably a lot of our viewers today, you may think that you're sitting pretty because you're sitting on the good side of the tracks in whatever town or city you live in in America. It can happen to you or your child too. And I'll give you an example. We all think courtesy of Hollywood of gorilla pimping. Oh, it's the ticket. It's the Liam Neeson movie. Like your daughter is somewhere and some bad man in a panel van comes and kidnaps her out of the street or whatever. And she's forced into sex slavery. And that does happen. It really does happen. And with the defunding of the police, we're seeing snatch and grab, in-your-face robberies in places like South Orange County and malls. So violent crime of all types is on the rise. And certainly kidnapping your kid out of a mall can and does happen. But it's rare. When we work with American sex trafficked teenage girls that we've rescued, more often than not, it's the Romeo pimping. What do I mean by Romeo Pimping? Some young guy, think Johnny Depp back in the day, who's 25, right? Or Ralph Macchio when he filmed The Karate Kid, he was 25 but playing a 15-year-old, right? Not a lot of facial hair, you know, very fine bone structure. He can pass. He can pass as a 15-year-old. That guy goes and enrolls himself in the sophomore grade of your daughter's high school or the junior year of your daughter's high school, even though he's actually 10 years older than that. And he falls in love with your daughter. And he's very, very polished and very normal looking. And he courts your daughter for three months. He brings flowers to her. He shakes your hand. Oh, nice to meet you, Mr. Jones. Yes, I'm going to take your daughter to dinner at the little pizza place that just opened in town. I'll make sure to have her back by her 10 p.m. curfew. And oh boy, oh boy, does he show up at 9.58 with your daughter. Super happy. Seems like a nice guy. Well-spoken, good looking. What more could you ask for for your daughter's first boyfriend? And this goes on for months right? Two, three months. We're not talking a day, talking months. And you're comfortable with them. And you think she's won the lottery. She thinks she's won the lottery. Your daughter does. And then one day, Johnny comes to your girl and he says, hey, babe, 
remember when my friend loaned me money because my dad was out of a job and couldn't make his mortgage payment that two months a year ago that I told you about? Well, the money is now due and he needs it back, but I don't have the money yet to pay him back because my family's still on hard times here. But he did say if you just got with him, and I know you're not going to want to do this, but if you just got with him, that he'd just forgive the debt. And your daughter's like, what? I'm not going to get with him. I love you, baby. Like, no, like we're, we're friend girlfriend. We're like going to get engaged after high school and go off into the sunset and get married. And he's like, I know, I know, but it's just this one time. And please, baby, like, I just don't have the money. And this is the only way that, so he works on it, works on it, works on it. Finally, your daughter in a fit of self-doubt and being persuaded says, okay, just this one time. I'll do it just this one time. And then you'll be back to basic and we'll be good to go. And she gets with it. And unbeknownst to her, during the time your daughter is doing a favor for her boyfriend to erase the debt, they are recording it on one of these devices. They are recording her in compromising half-naked, fully-naked positions. And two days passes and the boyfriend comes back, Johnny comes back to your daughter and goes, hey, we're going to go to a party tonight and you're going to get with half the Spike Pike fraternity. And your daughter's like, the hell are you say? What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, you're going to do that not Mr. Nice Guy. And she's like, no, I'm not. I'm a good Christian girl. My dad's a pastor. My mom's a lawyer. Like, what are you talking about? Like, no. And he's like, yeah, you are. Because if you don't, remember when you got with my friend the other day? Yeah, we took pics and some rolling video. I'm going to send that to your church pastor and all the think footloose small town Texas, everybody in town, in this Christian town. And, you know, your mom, who's the Girl Scout leader for your daughter's troop, all their parents, and uh, your parents and all your extended relatives. And I'll make sure I'll send it to everybody in high school with you. And it's called sextortion. It's extortion using sex. Sextortion is actually a thing. You could Google FBI has full pages to, dedicated to sextortion and the rise of sextortion. And so at that point, your daughter goes, okay. And she goes out on a date with Johnny tonight. And he brings her back at 9.58. Oh, nice to see you, Mr. Jones. Yeah, I'll be back this weekend. We can go to the volleyball game that your daughter's, you know, in the playoffs for. And he waits for you to go to bed. And then he shows back up at midnight and your daughter climbs out her bedroom window and goes and gets in his car and he takes her to the frat party or takes her to the bad side of town or he takes her to a high net worth traveling businessman who answered his Craigslist ad at the Marriott down the street. And your daughter is being sex trafficked from midnight to four and you're none the wiser except three months later, she's down to 90 pounds. Her grades are in the toilet. She won't talk to anybody. She's cutting. All her friends think she's doing drugs. She's not doing drugs. She's being sex trafficked despite the fact that she was varsity cheer squad on track to go to Harvard after she graduated with a 4.3 GPA. That's how it happens in America. So no, do not sit there smugly thinking, oh, it can't happen to me or somebody I know. It can and it does. And those are some of the stories we hear when we rescue girls. So how many girls have we saved from that end through going to their junior highs and their high schools and doing awareness campaigns and doing online training? Incalculable, but probably a whole lot hundreds, if not thousands at this point. The A21 campaign has been around for well over a decade now. I'm guessing they're into the thousands of girls that we rescue old school. And by that, I mean going into the brothel, answering a cry for help on our sex trafficking hotline and sending guys out to actually do the rescue, put her in a recovery house like the one we run in Greece in A21, get her therapy, get her the spiritual, emotional, psychological, physical help that she needs and the skill set. So when you're rescuing her in Europe, they're 16 years old. And you can do that and you can go vocationally rehab them and you can send them out to go be a waitress or a maid or whatever, a teacher or work with the pastor in the local town. But let me tell you, when you pull a kid out of a brothel in Thailand when they're seven, 
when a youngest girl in the Laotian sex trafficking recovery center, when I first started doing this work in 2013, was seven. She had already been in the life, already been at a child brothel and been rescued, and now was seven and in the recovery house. You're not going to vocationally rehab that girl. You need a foster family for her to raise her until she's 17 and can get some job skills and go out. So very different scene when you go into the harder parts of Africa and Asia than it is in Europe or America, where the age of the girls, it's much older. Most average age girls are turned out in America's 12. Average age in Southeast Asia, India, Africa, you could take a decade off that and probably be close to the mark. Wow. Obviously very dark. And in the example you gave, that would be horrible. I have a daughter and I would think about such things. You try to do everything right and a bad person enters their life. It can happen. I know people who had good families and got into drugs because the kid down the street was into drugs. Everything else was equal to my life, except I didn't have that neighbor. So bad people are everywhere. Psychopaths are everywhere. You do have to beware but when it comes to like institutionalized, structured, sanctioned child sex brothels, how do you stop such a thing? I understand the poverty aspect. It gets me thinking, okay, well, there's no opportunity there. That's the communism aspect. Well, so what do you do? If I had a t-shirt company, should I actually put the factory over there and pay them 20% more than anywhere else in the neighborhood pays. So they at least have some job and can eat. It's like, then you get the bad PR from having that kind of like slave labor operation over there. You know, then you're the Nike. Right. Um, and so I don't know. I just don't know. But it's like, once you have the awareness of this problem, and people have been aware before our conversation today, but you start really thinking about it deeply. And it's like, how... Would you stop such a thing? It's a frustrating aspect of the current situation where we spend so much money in Ukraine. We're throwing billions of dollars over there. We're throwing billions at Israel. Can we put the money where maybe it could be helpful? Then you have other people talking about the back end of this where the CIA's coups and their international operations keep these areas in chaos and squalor so that these sorts of activities can go on. You know, why are there people coming up through Central America trying to get across the U.S. border? Well, the CIA is doing some actions down there that cause extreme situations that make people do anything they can for a better life. So we're not going to fix the whole world today, unfortunately. But I just wonder, how do you stop like a place where this red light district that, that girl you mentioned in that photo, I remember her story from the book. I believe her story was that she was forced to go get a nose job because they're getting these kids to get nose jobs and breast implants. They want them to look like children, but with big tits. So they go and they make them do this kind of shit. And I think her story was she had just had a nose job. The gauze were still in her nose and she was going to have to go to work, quote unquote, and you and the pastor there were like, actually, if we just buy her drinks and we we're paying money to the bar, you know, we're keeping the money flowing. Can she just stay down here and drink with us and not have to go fuck 10 guys upstairs? And that's how that picture was taken, because she was like so thrilled to have one night off so her nose job could heal. I mean, this is so different than some psychopath taking your daughter from a uh, middle-class Valley high school situation and pimping her out. These are 
structures that are standing there at all times, 140 brothels with children in them. I'm sure most of the customers are Westerners. I'm sure a lot of the customers are rich people, but man, it's just like, how do you solve that problem? What does the local government even say when they're approached about these kind of problems? Because you did a little of that. Well, we try to work with the non-corrupt cops in these places we go. And the Royal Thai Police has a crime suppression division, which is the equivalent of a good triple letter agency in our country. It's the non-corrupt guys who actually give a darn, actually want to make a difference. And we try to liaise with them because that way, when you loop in the government that you're going to go bust a brothel, the bad guys on the force aren't telling the brothel so that they're gone by the time you get there, right? (laughs) It's a very dicey scene, but you also need sort of permission to operate in these countries. So you do need to loop in the locals, but you want to be working with the good eggs, not the bad eggs. And it's a dicey situation. The answer to the question was really, really funny. Some of the girls that I was meeting in this town in the fall of 2013, 10 years ago, because they have some downtime between customers and they have downtime in the late afternoon after they first wake up and get ready their makeup on before the traffic picks up for them later in the night. They were sitting on a bench out and they were weaving together strips of material. And I was like, what are you making? And they're like, oh, we're making a purse. And it was beautiful. I mean, it looked like one of those seatbelt purses that was popular at the time. And I'm like, wow, like, where'd you get the material? They're like, oh, it's stuff we pull out of the river. So they were basically recycling trash flooding down the river that divides Thailand from Malaysia. And they were bored. So they were doing handcrafts, which they knew how to do from growing up in Laos in a village somewhere, right? And I was like, this is amazing. I'm like, what are you going to do when you're done with it? Like, where do you sell it? And they laughed. And they're like, there's no market for this here. Is the town of brothels and the only people in the town are men. Like they're they're under rapists basically, not to buy purses for their wives, you know. And I was like, this is insanity. And I went back to my hotel room a week later in Bangkok and I Googled what it costs at the time to feed a family of 10 in Laos, because that's why the girl was sold from Laos to the brothel for like a year or months. I forget what the exact parameters was, but it was like $30. Whatever the answer was, was $30 and you buy them a whole bunch of not starving with their family for like X bags of rice. And I'm like, this is incredible. Why are we not taking the handcrafts that they're making that they're just tossing aside when they're done with because they're doing it not to sell it because they're bored and getting them systematically sold to Target and Macy's and Walmart and oh my gosh, one sale of one person. I would have bought these persons like they were nice. And I'm not even that into it, but like, these are things my friends would have bought who are all materialistic. I'm like, one sale a month would feed a family in Laos for the better part of a year. Like, why are we not doing this? And that is one of the answers, microfinance opportunities. So I don't know what you think about Richard Branson. I'm not sure what to think of him, but he's got an amazing book that I read 10 years ago. I'm looking at it right now. Screw business as usual. And in there, he quoted the fact that they do microfinance opportunities. They give tiny loans to women in these villages to like buy a sewing machine. I mean, just nothing, right? You know, 30 bucks, right? Like we're not talking $10,000. We're talking price of a nice dinner, right? And they teach the women to sew on the sewing machine if they don't know how to use it already. 
And the rate of repayment on these loans is astronomical. It's like almost 100%. When you give the money to the wife, when you give the money to the dad of the family, he goes down the street and smokes some opium and it's gone. But when you give the money to the wife who is maternally connected to the children because we carried them around in our body for nine months, et cetera, et cetera, they use it for good and they end up making money for their family and you end up not having your daughter in a brothel. There was another article I read when I first got into this. It was an article in uh, Red Book, and it's, I talked about it in the book, but I don't think I talked about the other profile they did. And it was a feminist who'd gone to Africa to see what the sex trafficking problem was and try to help. And when they interviewed the villagers, they're like, why are you selling your oldest daughter to a brothel? And they were like, oh, well, that's simple because we don't have enough food every other year. And they're like, well, okay. They kept pulling the chain, pulling the chain. Why don't you have enough food every second or third year? As a roving band of elephants will come through the village and trample our little fences and trample our crops. And then we don't have corn or maize or whatever they're growing. And we're starving and we have to sell kids. And the end of this article was hysterical because the lady goes, right? White, do-gooder, feminist lady. She's like, if you had asked me, I forget it was Gloria Steinem or one of the one of the same. You would ask me before I went to Africa what I thought the answer was to the sex slavery problem in Africa. Never, ever, 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 ever in a million years would I have thought it would have been paying for electric fences to keep the elephants at bay and away from their crops. But in fact, that was the answer to fixing the problem of families having to sell their child because they couldn't afford to feed them. So you've got to go into these regions and listen to what the locals say because they will tell you what their own drivers for poverty are. But sometimes it's as simple as a fence. Sometimes it's as simple as a sewing machine. And the larger issue, if I may, you know, when the cops and the lawyers in these areas are not going to do their job, you still need to get the job done. This is $150 billion a year industry. Fastest growing crime in the year. Soon, it'll be the number one crime above even drugs. And that is a lot of human trafficking. So my co-founder in Liberty Asia and I devised a plan where we thought, all right, if the cops aren't going to do the job of taking out the bad guys, let's get the banks to do it. In 2012, there was an article that came out in the New York Times front page news, and it said the Department of Justice fined HSBC, a bank, HSBC, almost $2 billion with a B for, quote, knowingly allowing Mexican drug cartels and Iranian arms dealers to run dirty money through their American ranches because that's money laundering. So for those of you who aren't aware, when you make money from an illegal crime, whether selling cocaine to an addict or selling a seven-year-old to a sex buyer, that isn't money like it is from your dry cleaner shop or your auto body business. That is dirty money, the profit of a crime. And then when you take that dirty money and you deposit it in your bank account a week later, that is also a crime. It's called money laundering. And not only are you not supposed to do the crime of money laundering, but the banks are not supposed to knowingly allow you to launder dirty money through their branches. And if they do so, and they trim a blind eye to it, and they ignore it so they can make interest off your dirty money, the Department of Justice can and will find them a lot of money to push them back into doing the right thing. So this co-founder of mine and I were like, hey, if it worked on the Iranian arms dealers for the DOJ to find the cartels and the Iranian arms dealers, why don't we do this in the trafficking realm? We'll start aggregating the names of all the bad guys that all the Navy SEAL type dudes are running into on the ground who are pushing and selling the girls for sex. We're going to make a laundry list of all the bad men, essentially. We're going to take that laundry list of bad men names. We're going to give it to an intelligence profiler. We ended up giving it to Thomson Reuters World Check. 
which for those of you who don't know, it's the largest intelligence profiler in the world. When you go down to B of A or Chase or your credit union and you're trying to open a new account and your kid is whining and like, mommy, why is this taking a half hour? I'm hungry. Can't we leave yet? And you're like, yeah, gosh, why is it taking a half hour? That is because your bank by federal law and regulation is required to run your name. They have to do an intel analysis on you to make sure that you're just Mr. Greg so-and-so living in whatever city you are with two soccer kids and that you're not a drug dealer or a member of the cartel. And once they verify that you're a soccer mom or a soccer dad, bingo, you have an account. If they run your name against their intelligence profile that Thompson Reuters provides them with and it comes up hot, like, hey, he might be a sex trafficker. He might be a cartel dealer, right? Cocaine dealer. They are required to do further due diligence and either not open you that bank account if it turns out that you are, in fact, the bad guy and not an innocent guy with the same name as the bad guy, but you're the actual bad guy. They either need to not open you that account or if you have an existing account, they are supposed to freeze the assets. So we were like, bingo. We get the names of the bad guys to Thomson Reuters. They make an Intel profile. They blast it out to 8,000 banks worldwide, which we got done on an automated basis eventually. And now we've got the bank backed into a corner. Either they do the thing they're supposed to do and freeze that ethnic hell, or they don't, and they're risking a DOJ multi-billion dollar sanction for not having done the right thing. And that, my friends, is how you sidestep a completely apathetic, impotent criminal justice system or non-existent criminal justice system in these third world countries, corrupt criminal justice system, and force the banks to do the right thing. And by the way, that is a macro level solution, which we need in addition to the micro level solutions of dragging one girl at a time out of the brothel or educating one junior high school at a time in America on how to not fall prey to sex trafficking. Those are micro level solutions and they're needed, but they're never going to make a debt in sex trafficking. Okay. You need a macro level solution. And when you hamstring the money line of the cartels and the biggest mafias in the world, I don't care who you are, legitimate business or illegal business, nobody but nobody runs their business without access to their cash. That is how you bring it down from the inside. So those are some of the creative solutions that we've been involved in creating and furthering and trying to get a handle on this problem during the time you and I are alive. Mm -hmm. You are right that it's really difficult if your goal, if your motivation is to get the kids out of the brothels. There's a lot of things that come up that people don't think about. These kids don't have a lot of opportunity. So are you going to adopt them? Are you going to raise the kids yourself? Because where are they going to go? It is a, a nightmare situation to actually try to solve it. And you can try to donate money, but if you're not going to actually go into a dangerous place and extract children, then you can maybe fund an organization that is going to do that, I guess, if they're there. But it's just, you can maybe take one out and then two more pop up. But it's just a, a really crazy situation. And maybe it gives people a little perspective into not that we don't have big problems and tyranny coming down the pike, but, you know, just think about the rest of the world and be thankful for what we do have. And because we're thankful, we should want to preserve it and extend it. And now is the time to do that, as you're saying. So that's the lesson. As bad as it's been the last three years here in America, we have a pretty damn good and our founding fathers left us with an incredible infrastructure. First Amendment, Second Amendment, those are world-defining differences between the governments that went before ours and those that have come after. And we need to hang on to those 
rights. We need to use those rights, the freedom to speak, gather, protest peacefully, to hang on to our country and re-secure the freedoms that so many who went before us died and gave their lives for and their fortunes for. And the time is now. We can make a difference, but we need to just stand up. And that is really why I named my book, Just Stand Up, My Fight for Freedom from the Brothels of Asia to the Streets of America, because so many of the novel initiatives that we have found successful in these third world countries where everybody's against you, they work now in our country. Why? Because the structures that are supposed to save us, you know, the courts, the legislatures are broken in the blue states. But if you play it like we play it in the third world countries with some of these name and chain programs and creative endeavors, you get a lot more traction than you do just relying on broken institutions. So I talk about it in the book and I lecture a lot on it. I speak a lot on it. And I encourage you to try it out in your neighborhood. You could go spend a few hundred grand on a, on a lawsuit. It probably won't work. And I'm a lawyer, 30-year litigator telling you that. Or you could spend zero dollars doing a name and shame program on your local evil politician. And you may well put him in check and get rid of his bad program. I have done it numerous times now. Many other people I know of as well. So I really encourage you to learn what's working in these third world countries because it's working here now. And then to use the First Amendment rights we still have to help preserve our country because you just don't know how good you got it even when on a bad day until you go to a place like I've been. And I encourage you to go there because it'll just renew your passion for life, for the good things in life, your gratitude, and really re-inspire you to do the right thing by future generations. And that's really what it's about. So thanks again for having me. I was loving talking to your viewers and go to leadendus.com. If you would, and buy my book. I haven't had a paycheck in four years now. And I promise I'll put the little tiny bit of profit there back into the freedom fight for our children and children around the world. Mm, I love it. Well, you're clearly dedicated. And I hope people are inspired to get a little more involved themselves. But thank you for your time and keep fighting the good fight. Will do. Take care, my friend. Until we see each other again. All right. Bye. Wow. Dark stuff today, guys. We get into so many different things around here that I usually do try to ask myself, so what was the point with this one? What did we learn? What could a person listening take away from it? And why I might book something and then what the takeaway might be after the interview is over, that can change because conversations are organic like that. But I guess I really did just want to see some of us recalibrate as far as how bad we have it and how bad it is in other places around the world. And I don't want to see people twisting that statement around into some sort of political statement or interpret it as anything deeper than simply in the big scheme of things right now, take a deep breath and realize that we sometimes get pretty hyped up and pretty stressed out in the conspiracy culture, and really, we do have it pretty good. We could have it better, and we should strive for better. I'm not denying that. And we will always have to be vigilant against those who seek to erode our way of life. But the world has some really dark corners that most of us really don't even have to think about very often. I know we talk about child trafficking at an elite level, at a blackmail network level, oftentimes because it's provocative and we know corruption and depravity run deep at the top, but real human trafficking, slave labor, forced underage sex work, a lot of the time it's low-level 
typical scumbags running shit like this. And some people seem to find that less exciting than if it's child trafficking for the sake of elite families drinking adrenochrome or wannabe Victoria's Secret models getting side gigs on Epstein's Island. I guess this just felt like a reminder to not normalize human trafficking and don't let the bite get taken out of the term because here's what it really is. And again, I don't know exactly what a person listening is supposed to do except be grateful for the good things they have and focus a bit more on the general positives, at least for the rest of the day, right? I hadn't thought about this in a while, but as I was reading her book and Pol Pot and Cambodia was coming up, I was reminded that when I was still working at Sunglass Hut, the original job that allowed me to move from Missouri to San Diego, a guy started working there whose name I'll never forget. Probably shouldn't say his name here. But once we got talking about our lives, it turns out that he was born into a pretty well-to-do family with servants in Cambodia. And his father was good friends with the Cambodian royal family. And then Pol Pot rolled through, and he was just a kid, like five or ten. And he told me some wild stuff about having to hide in the woods, seeing people make decisions to kill crying babies to keep the group safe, all that kind of thing, learning how to bow hunt and skinning and eating squirrels and whatever they could find out there, then making it to America and starting over, more or less. And he was the most positive guy. And on his lunch breaks, he would go over to the grocery store and get a third pound of deli sliced ham or turkey and eat only that, which always stuck out to me. And he would say, well, it's better than what I had in the past. This stuff is great. And I don't know. I guess it's just a story that speaks to the same general point, I guess. Given that I was so miserable in retail, his stories made me feel a bit more perspective. But it seems clear that nobody who could do anything about this really wants to. And remember that the next time they engineer the public's outrage to justify whatever it is they already wanted to do. Because these kind of places we talked about today are out there. And there's very little anyone in power is doing about it. Period. Hot off the heels of the John Potash show, it was pretty fresh in my mind that banks don't care. It's not because they're unaware. So I tried to make that point when that came up in the Plus show, and I respect the hell out of Lee for getting her hands dirty like she has, actually going to dangerous places to really see things for herself. These stories should be told, for sure. But it's still hard to see... Change really happening. Ugh. But I guess, again, get some perspective and some motivation. Think about these realities the next time you want to just waste a day and instead try to get the most out of every moment you have. I guess that's the sort of cheesy takeaway here because otherwise it just feels hopeless and depressing. I probably disagree with Lee about legalizing prostitution. I see a parallel with drugs where you don't really know what you're getting. The black market might lace things with fentanyl or bleach or whatever they want. 
But if you bring vices and human nature really to the surface and put some guardrails on it, to me, that's the only thing that might halfway work. But what do I know? Either way, much respect. I hope some people are inspired to act where they can. Keep the forgotten and the ones still suffering in this very moment in your hearts and minds. There are plenty of innocent people caught in plenty of various crosshairs right now, huh? But that pretty much does it for me today. If you want to hear the full two-hour interview, be a Plus member. You know the deal. TheHigherSideChats.com or sign up right there in your show notes or via the Patreon where you can get the entire Plus archive through Spotify if that's where you usually get your podcasts. Both Plus feeds work with most podcast apps, Apple, Android, Podcast Addict, whatever it is. It's not hard and you don't have to change how you listen to the show. I appreciate the support from you and you can have twice as much show from me. It's a win-win. And as always now, if you want to see video clips from both the free and plus hour, I do use the YouTube channel and social media for that. Maybe this one won't be on YouTube now that I think about it, but clips will go on Twitter, Instagram, and Telegram. But before we go, let's look at the meetup calendar as well. On deck, October 14th. That's that big day. Many events. We have Edgewater, Colorado. Rappingers Falls, New York. Lansing, Michigan. Huntington, Indiana. And that's it. Then October 18th, the PlayStation Party Chat. And October 20th, we have one in Cincinnati, Ohio. And we'll leave it at that. But good stuff. Anyone can make an event in your hometown and find more people based on a mutual enjoyment of THC. And why not? You might as well. But I am getting out of here. Big thanks again to Lee. What a wild ride. Check her out and let her know you appreciate her dedication if you do. And I'll see you next time. Your move, pimps, traffickers, and profiteers of human exploitation. Your fucking they built a little empire out of some crazy garbage called the blood of the exploited working class but they've overcome their shyness now we're calling them your highness and the world screams save me thc they destroyed the bonds of friendship and respect between the only people left who'd even look them in the eye. Now they laugh and make a fortune off the same ones that they tortured. And a world screams, save me, THC.
explode.